we are now ready to go on to the next major key of prophecy that the church is a mystery that is the church is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom but is something new which God had kept hidden as a mystery or secret in himself from the foundation of the world only to be revealed at the right time and so the church is not directly revealed in the Old Testament it was hidden in different types and shadows but not explicitly prophesied and that's why it was a surprise to the first Jewish believers that God was accepting Gentiles on an equal basis with them in the church the word mystery is one of the key words of the New Testament describing something that had been previously kept secret but now was revealed the main mystery of the New Testament was that after Christ came the first time as the suffering Messiah Israel would reject him as king so he would not be able to establish his messianic kingdom so instead he brought in his mystery kingdom which is in operation in this present age at the heart of this mystery is the church a new man the body of Christ consisting of both Jews and Gentiles in Christ then after the church age he will move to establish his messianic kingdom to fulfill all the prophecies in Romans 16:25, Paul talked about the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and in Ephesians 3 4 and 5 Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit it was given to Paul to most fully expound the mystery but actually it was Jesus who started to reveal it and then Paul completed this revelation there was a reason why God had to keep the church age hidden in the Old Testament in his faithfulness to fulfill his promises to Israel once he had established the spiritual foundation for the messianic kingdom through the new covenant he was honor bound to fulfill his covenants and to establish his kingdom if Israel was ready to receive it so even after his resurrection he still offered the kingdom to Israel now of course God in, in his omniscience knew that Israel would reject his offer and so he was not taken by surprise and he had planned to bring in the church age even from the foundation of the world however he could not reveal the church age for otherwise the offer of the kingdom to Israel could not be a genuine offer Israel's free will would be violated by the revelation that they would reject Christ a parallel thing happens in our own lives when God gives us opportunities he knows in advance what decisions we'll make if we'll accept or reject but he does not reveal to us what choice we'll make for that would remove our free will for this reason Jesus had to be very careful in starting to reveal the mystery of what would happen after his resurrection in the church age and he only did it when it was clear that Israel was rejecting him even then he only did it in code this is why he began speaking in parables because it had to be done in such a way that his disciples could understand but the leaders of Israel were left in the dark because then that would compromise the genuineness of the kingdom offer Jesus had to start revealing the mystery because his disciples were naturally expecting him to introduce the messianic kingdom he needed to prepare them for what would actually happen next the mystery kingdom an extended period of time between his suffering and his glory when the anointing to be God's representatives would be passed from Israel to the church the key chapter where Jesus begins to give the foundational revelation of the mystery is Matthew 13 and you'll now be able to understand some of the hard sayings of Jesus 
In Matthew 13:10 to 12, the disciples asked, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, that's the leaders of Israel, it has not been granted. For whoever has ears to hear, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have ears to hear, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Because the leaders did not hear and receive his word, the kingdom will be taken away from them. You see, in verse 13 he continues, Therefore I speak to them, that's Israel's unbelieving leaders, in parables. Because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So he's talking about their hardness of heart. They have closed their ears and their eyes to Christ, making it impossible for them to receive the kingdom. Therefore, he must reveal the mystery, but in an indirect way, in parables, so that in their spiritual blindness, they can't understand what he's saying. In verse 15, he affirms that if they would open their eyes and turn to him, he would restore them. It was their choice. Then in verse 16, he said that by contrast, his disciples were privileged to understand the mystery. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This proves that the Old Testament prophets did not know about the mystery, but Jesus was now revealing it to his disciples for the first time. So, in Matthew 13, Jesus started to reveal the mystery kingdom through the parables. In verse 34 it says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and that's actually in Psalm 78, verse 2, which says, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So, the parables of Matthew 13 are a revelation of what God had kept secret from the foundation of the world. They're not anything that was revealed in the Old Testament. This is brand new information. So, as it became clear that Israel would reject Christ and the Messianic Kingdom would be postponed, Jesus started to prepare his disciples by describing what form God's Kingdom would take in the time between his two comings. He called it the mysteries of the kingdom in verse 11. That is the mystery kingdom, which will be my term for it. Before studying these parables, let's look at the context to see what brought forth this new revelation from Jesus. The central theme of Matthew's gospel is the presentation of Jesus to Israel as the Messiah King resulting in their rejection of him and then the results of that rejection. The rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel came to a climax in Matthew 12 when Jesus cast out a deaf and dumb spirit. To understand their extreme reaction, it's necessary for you to know about messianic miracles. According to the rabbinical teaching of that time, certain miracles that had never been accomplished in Israel were called messianic miracles, which only the Messiah could do. So by their own teaching, these were important signs of the Messiah. Therefore, whenever Jesus did a messianic miracle, he was making a direct claim to be the Messiah, and the people knew it. This forced them to decide for or against him. Thus, it created a great popular response, but it also caused increased opposition to him from the leadership, for it put them on the spot, forcing a reaction. Thus, they provide the key turning points in the gospel story. 
The first messianic miracle was the healing of a leper. Although Naaman, a Gentile, a Syrian, was healed of leprosy, no Israelite had been healed of leprosy, as Jesus pointed out in Luke 4.27. Leprosy was a symbol of sin, which only the Messiah can cleanse, so this was a miracle reserved for the Messiah. When Jesus healed his first leper in Mark 1.40, he told him to show himself to the priest and offer for his cleansing the things which Moses commanded as a witness to them, that the Messiah was in town and his name was Jesus. This is a reference to Leviticus 13 and 14. Leviticus 13 contained instructions to the priests what to do when someone had leprosy, and Leviticus 14 told them what to do when someone was healed of leprosy. But they never practiced chapter 14, because nobody was ever healed of it. They were told that only when the Messiah comes will they need chapter 14. When Jesus healed his first leper, the leaders initiated an immediate official investigation of his Messiahship, which by their own rules had to start with a period of quiet observation. This is why Luke 5.17 says that the scribes and Pharisees had come from every town in Israel to Capernaum to see Jesus. He reaffirmed his messianic claims by saying to the paralytic let down through the roof, your sins are forgiven, and then healing him. In response, they moved to the second phase of their investigation because he claimed to have the power to forgive sins. And the second phase of the investigation was interrogation, questioning, challenging him at every opportunity. This continued until his second messianic miracle in Matthew 12, the casting out of a dumb spirit. Now the Jews did exorcisms by asking the demon to identify itself, and then they felt they had a chance to cast it out. But this would not work for a dumb spirit, so they said that only the Messiah could cast out a dumb spirit. So in Matthew 12, when Jesus cast out a deaf and dumb spirit, this caused consternation. Verse 23 says, all the crowds were amazed and they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In the light of this second messianic miracle, the leaders couldn't sit on the fence anymore. They had to make a public de declaration of their decision to accept or reject Jesus as Messiah. And if they rejected, to explain why. This explains why in verse 24, they came up with the extreme explanation that he cast out demons by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons. This was a big step towards a final rejection of Jesus, which is why he warned them of the danger of committing the unforgivable sin, which would bring them under certain judgment. But they hadn't crossed this line yet, so in Matthew 12:39, he told them that he would give them another messianic sign, the sign of Jonah. The third messianic miracle is the healing of the man born blind in John 9. As the man himself said in verse 32, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. The fourth messianic miracle is the sign of Jonah, a resurrection after three days. First of all, Jesus did this by raising Lazarus in John 11. And in response, as well as trying to kill Lazarus, it says in John 11:53, so from that day on they planned together to kill him, to kill Jesus. So the setting for the revelation of the mystery in Matthew 13 was the response of the leaders to the messianic miracle of casting out a dumb demon in Matthew 12 when they first openly declared their rejection of him as the Messiah. This was the cue for him to start to reveal the mystery kingdom that would come instead of the messianic kingdom. Notice that Matthew 13:1 says, The same day 
Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the seaside. So the very same day that he was rejected by Israel, he left the house and he went to the sea to reveal the mystery. As we've said, we're to expect a lot of coded language in this chapter. We will see that the house represents Israel, and in line with biblical symbolism, the sea represents the nations. So here is a prophetic picture of Jesus leaving Israel and going to the nations as a result of his rejection by Israel. Verse 2 and 3 then says, And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. He starts each parable with, The kingdom of heaven is like. So he's describing what the kingdom will be like in this new mystery age. Before we go into the parables of Matthew 13, we need to look at introductory parables in Matthew 12, while he's still in the house, because they reveal his dealings with Israel in response to his rejection. The first prophetic parable is about Israel as the empty house. Matthew 12, 43 to 45 says, Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, put in order. And then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, much more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. It was common knowledge that if you cast a demon out of a person, but if his house is not then filled with the Lord, then evil spirits will come back worse than before. Then Jesus explained the parable, applying it to Israel as the house. In Matthew 12:45, he said, That is the way it will be also with this evil generation of Israel. He compares that generation of Israel to the person which was a demon's house. John and Jesus had cleaned house. They'd cleaned the house of Israel to prepare it to receive Jesus. But because they rejected him, the house was left empty. Israel didn't invite Jesus in their house. So it was just a matter of time before something worse was going to happen to the house of Israel. And indeed, 40 years later, the Romans destroyed it. Then in Matthew 12, 46 to 50, Jesus describes the new family of faith that he would build. In this picture, his own natural family, who at this stage were not listening to him, they represent Israel. Verse 46 says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside, seeking to speak to him. Verse 48 continues, but Jesus answered the one telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. He was prophesying the formation of a new spiritual family of those who believe in him and obey his words and not based on physical descent. Next, we go to the parables that Jesus said by the seaside, which describe the operation of the kingdom in the church age, which is very different from the messianic kingdom, which the disciples had expected to happen. The first one is the parable of the sower in verses 3 to 9. 
It shows that the mystery kingdom is not a political, outwardly visible kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom that will be spread through the sowing of the seed of God's word in men's hearts, which is able to produce good fruit, good results. Thus the essence of the kingdom in this time is God's word working in men's hearts. The fruit or manifestation of the kingdom comes from allowing the word to do its work in our lives. It also describes Satan as being active, whereas in the messianic kingdom he'll be locked up. It reveals all the ways that Satan tries to steal the word or stop it from bringing forth fruit, whether it's by persecution or distraction, cluttering your life with other things like worries, pleasures, responsibilities of life, so that you don't pay enough attention to the word of God. And that's why the grand conclusion of this parable is when Jesus said out loud, very loud, in verse 9, He that has ears, let him hear. Verse 12 explains this more. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The next parable of the wheat and tares in verse 24 to 30 expands on the parable of the sower. It reveals that at the same time the kingdom of God is sowing the word, there's also a counter-sowing of false teaching by Satan's people. As a result, there's a mixture, because alongside the true wheat, there are also tares produced from the bad seed. This predicts the growth of false religions and cults, even false teaching, and a mixture of believers and unbelievers in the church world. Another significant aspect of this age, revealed by this parable, is the Lord's response when the servants say, Do you want us to pluck up the tares? He says, No, it's too dangerous. If you pull up the tares, you might pull up the wheat as well. It's sometimes hard, you see, to tell the difference. Only near harvest time do the heads of the tares turn black. So, this tells us that this is not an age of judgment, but of grace, when God generally withholds his judgment until the time of the final harvest. The Lord says in verse 30, Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, and gather the wheat into my barn. Next are two parables about two growths resulting from these two sowings. First, the parable of the mustard seed, which describes the result of the first sowing. That's in verse 31 and 32. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. It's smaller than all other seeds, but when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Jesus compared faith as a mustard seed. So this speaks of those who enter the kingdom through faith. Through the true sowing of the word, the kingdom will grow rapidly. And that's exactly what happened. The church started from a small seed and grew quickly into a large tree, covering the whole earth. Then it talks about birds, the birds that sit on the branches. Birds are also in the parable of the sower, but they're not believers. My question to you is, are you a bird or are you a branch? A branch, you see, is connected to the root. That's Jesus by faith. If you're organically united to Christ, you're part of the tree. Next, the parable of the leaven reveals the result of the second sowing. In Matthew 13:33, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. 
Leaven in the Bible always speaks of false teaching and sin, such as the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8 confirms this, and it speaks of the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When leaven is added to dough, it causes it to rise and expand. So this parable speaks of false teaching and sin that will infect the whole church world so that a lot of the apparent outward growth is not of any real worth. At this point, in verse 36, Jesus went back into the house, a picture of him turning back to Israel in the tribulation after the church age. So once he was back in the house, his focus turned to the state of things in the tribulation. First, he gave the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and tares in verse 37 to 43. But now his emphasis is what's going to happen at the end or consummation of the age, which is a technical word for the tribulation. He calls the end of the age the harvest. He says the harvest is the end of the age. So during this time, God will bring about a final separation of the righteous wheat and the unrighteous tares. In other words, this is a time of judgment, unlike the church age. The reaping will begin with the rapture of the church at the start of the tribulation. And then there will be a final sowing of the gospel in the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, any tares still remaining will be killed and join the rest of the unbelievers in the fires of Hades. Then, the righteous who have died in the tribulation, as well as the Old Testament saints, will be resurrected and will rule and reign with Christ in his messianic kingdom. The righteous still alive at Christ's return will also possess the messianic kingdom in their natural bodies. And so, by the end of the tribulation, first all the tares will have been thrown in the fire, and then all the wheat, the believers, will enter into the barn, that is, the messianic kingdom. As verse 43 says, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Then follow two wonderful parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, which refer to the two redeemed peoples that will be manifested by the end of this intervening time leading up to the messianic kingdom. And these two peoples actually show what God's purpose is in this mystery time to bring forth these two people. First, the hidden treasure. In verse 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure is Israel. For in Exodus 19.5, God calls Israel his special treasure. In the parable of the tares, Jesus said, The field is the world. So Israel was hidden in the world, which didn't understand her value. But a special man came, he's Jesus. He wanted to possess her, so he gave all that he had to buy the field. Likewise, Jesus didn't just redeem Israel, but gave his all, even his life, to buy the whole field. He died for the whole world, but he had a special interest in his treasure, Israel. Meanwhile, Israel has remained hidden among the nations, but you can be sure that the one who purchased her will soon recover his treasure from the dirt, clean it off, bring it out into the light, and lift it up high and put it on display for all to see. In the tribulation, you see, Israel will increasingly come to faith in the Messiah and be sent to stage as his witness, so that by its end all Israel will be saved. Then in the messianic kingdom, God's treasure will be the glory of the whole earth. Next is the pearl of great price, a picture of the church. 
Verse 45 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and, a f and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This man is Jesus, who saw us and chose us from before the foundation of the world. Then he gave his all, his very blood, to purchase the church, because we were of great value to him. The pearl differs from all other treasures formed in the earth, for the pearl is formed in the sea. Likewise, the church is formed in the nations. A pearl is formed in an oyster around an injury by the secretion of a pearly substance. Likewise, the church is formed in Christ around his wound. Those who believe are united to his death, so that together we form that pearl which grows by gradual accumulation. Our true life is hidden in Christ to be manifested later. When she is complete, he will lift her up out of the sea of nations in the rapture, her glory no longer hidden, but fully revealed in the light of his glory. She will be united together to the one who bought her and will be his glorious adorning. So the pearl of great price is a picture of what God will have brought forth in the mystery age from the nations. After this is the parable of the dragnet in verse 47, 48. Again it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. This dragnet was the fishing net for a mass catch, sweeping up everything in its path. The good or clean fish that could be eaten were separated from the unclean, which are useless and so thrown away. Jesus explains in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is another picture of the final separation of the clean, the believers, and the unclean in the tribulation. Angels are involved in the tribulation judgments that come to a climax at Christ's return, when they will complete the process of removing the wicked from the earth by physical death and throwing their souls into the fires of Hades. This is the judgment of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, where all the goats, the unbelievers, are killed. So only the sheep, the believers, enter into the millennial kingdom. And so we see, through these parables, Jesus gave the big picture of the extended period of time leading up to the messianic kingdom. Jesus concluded with a final parable, the teacher of new and old things, our example of how to handle the prophetic scriptures. In verse 52, Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings forth out of his treasure things new and old. The treasure is the word of God, which contains old and new truths. The teacher is to bring forth both the truth of the Old Testament concerning the messianic kingdom and the new truth concerning the mystery of the church age. We must hold them both together as true. The new does not replace the old. While Israel just holds to the old, most of the church world just holds to the new, ignoring the old. But we need both, and a balanced teacher holds forth the whole word of God. Yes, God has instituted the church age, but he will also set up his kingdom on the earth. So what Jesus is saying is, though I am giving you new information about the mystery, I am not negating what God has already revealed about the messianic kingdom. You have to hold and bring forth both of these truths together.